Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hello, podcast patterns. It's producer Mike here with another handy fact. Now, today's guest is a very successful TV presenter and producer, and now a best-selling author. And yet, he can't afford decent Wi-Fi. So, apologies in advance for the audio quality on some of today's interview. Don't blame me, Gov. I just edited the motherfucker. Namaste, Welcome to Namaste Motherfuckers, the only podcast where the worlds of comedy, self-help and business collide. I'm your host, Callie Beaton, and in today's episode, we're going to be looking at why you can never spend too much time watching television. A recent study found that viewers who binge watch TV shows report enjoying them less than those that watch one episode a week. That's a fact no one wants to hear. Watching action films makes you eat more than watching other TV shows. A bit like lockdowns made me eat more than a Marine just back from a special operation. Some American TV networks are speeding up repeats of shows such as Seinfeld and Friends by as much as 7.5% so they can squeeze in more ads. A bit like when I perform stand-up slowed down by 7.5%, so I have to write fewer gags. One US county jail now gives its inmates black and white jumpsuits because orange is the new black made orange ones too cool. I'm a bit scared to say this next one in case I unleash a Trekkie backlash, but here goes. Not one of the Star Trek TV shows or films actually contains the words, beam me up, Scotty. So um, maybe I've put the record straight and Trekkies will thank me. I guess time will tell. Um, And here's my favourite. Iceland's most successful reality TV show was called Keeping Up With The Katashians, and it featured a live stream of four little adoptable kittens living in a tiny house. There we go. Do you like the way I blamed you? It's like you're at a that? angle. It, wasn't it was me. That's my guest today, presenter, producer, and now best-selling author, Richard Osman. Richard and I have in common the fact that we both spent many years working as TV executives before, in his case, becoming a much-loved presenter of shows like Pointless, House of Games, pretty much a national treasure by now, and winner of Hearts' Weird Crush Award. And in my case, giving up the boardroom to become a comedian, now trying to make people laugh, mainly via Zoom, during a global pandemic, begging for cash by a crowdfunder. I've got slight feedback here. Can you hear me coming back twice? Oh no, I might be all right now. Uh, I can't at all. I suppose that's what feedback is. I didn't need to qualify that, did I? I think it's fine. I think between the two of us. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Now, I should say before we kick off the interview bit of the podcast, that despite having secured an unprecedented seven-figure deal for his trilogy of crime novels, The Thursday Murder Club, Richard's home tech setup sounds much like he's broadcasting from the lower reaches of Wookiee Hole. But hey, if you want glossy, polished Osman, you can get that every day on your telly boxes. This is raw, unfiltered, lockdown Osman, as you've never heard him before. I talked to Richard about hit TV formats, growing up without a dad, gender, ageing, being a 75-year-old woman in the body of a 50-year-old white man, life, death and the big questions. But I started by asking him about appealing to the mainstream versus being cool. Honestly, I would so love to be cool uh, and relevant. And or you know sometimes you have got a black jumper and a quiff, uh, I should say for anyone who obviously no one can see you but you're looking quite you're looking a bit a bit yeah. Jack Kerouac today. Oh, that's um is that is that someone from a Jack Kerouac novel yeah. or Jack Kerouac yeah. himself? I don't know well, like. either one, but I was thinking more from a novel. So yeah, or somebody who could have kind of hung about while Bob um, Dylan played his guitar back in the day, something like that. I was outside Turnham Green Tube yesterday, and um, the lovely Jeffrey Holland, who's this spike in Heidi High, wonderful actor said, I have got a new nickname for you uh, when I see you on television, Richard. It's Quiff Richard. I thought, okay, that's fine. Nice Everyone's a comedian, eyes, aren't they? We've all got time to be funny yeah. in well, this now. Yeah. No, not, it, I, I don't have anything else I can do apart from be mainstream. You know, you have to make the sort of telly you want to watch. You have to make the sort of telly that comes from your heart. You have to write the sort of books that you want to read and that come from your heart. And I honestly, I would love to be... You know, you get sort of intellectual sometimes. If, if you ever turn on Radio 4 and there's like people chatting about something, you think, oh, wow, where have you come from? This is amazing how you're speaking about things. And I can't do it. It's not, it's not for me. So what I try and do is the stuff that I love, which is mainstream, I try and make it as good as possible and as funny as possible and as smart as possible. But um, yeah, I'm not trying to, um, I'm not trying to dumb down or I'm, I'm literally, I'm working at the limits of my intelligence at all times, I assure you. I think you're being quite self-deprecating because maybe, I mean, there may be types of intelligence that all of us struggle to have. We all notice the types of intelligence we don't have, right? And we take for granted the bits we do yes. because to us, they're just part of us. Um, but one of the things, um, people talk a lot about your tweets and you are, do you think that's the optimal format for you? Do you think you've got like the attention span and the wit? <laughs> you're like, I can do that number of characters and now I'm going to go and watch yeah. the snooker. Is that is that how it is to be inside of yes. the Osman house? Oh my goodness. <laughs> Well, that's like being inside the Osmond brain. You just, you've got it. Uh, my good friend, Lucy Preble, talks about intelligence. And she said, well, look, the thing is, there's different types of intelligence. There's speed of intelligence. There's originality of intelligence. And there's depth of intelligence. And I think I've got speed of intelligence. I can come back with a one-liner. I can see stuff quite quickly and work out what's going on. I think I've got some originality. I've got no depth of intelligence. Someone like Lucy does have huge, you know, she can just go off and look, look at something for six months. People I went to university with, who are now professors. The cleverest person I know is a guy called Professor Alan Finlayson. He's at UEA. And Alan, you know, you wouldn't put them on a panel show because he's not going he's, he's not going to riff with Lee Mack. But you know, if you want to know what's going on in the world and what are the kind of undercurrents that are, that, that are dragging us forward into the future, Alan's your man because he looks into the world in such incredible depth. And that's the kind of intelligence that I admire. Uh, I was about to say aspire to, but I, I long ago decided not to aspire to it because if you know if you haven't got it you haven't got it right 
Well, you probably, you might, it's, it's also about choice, right? You just thought, if you think about, I interviewed John Lloyd um, a couple of weeks ago for the podcast, and he also mm. talked about having, you know, he can talk about anything, you know, for 30 seconds, but don't try and yes. get to talk about it for <laughs> half an hour, which again, I thought was yeah. slightly unfair on him. But obviously that's the whole QI model, right? You look at things that, yes. are, that are little bits of trivia and you delve into them from a lateral angle and they please people in a sort of quaint, reassuring yes. way. And you remembered one, one thing that you can talk about and Hinting at depth is the big secret. You can hint at depth, but you can, you know, it's fascinating now. We've got a prime minister who, for as many faults, has speed of thought and originality of thought, and he can express himself, okay? He has no depth of thought. He has no work ethic. He has no ability to work hard. He has no ability to look into long-term consequences or something. Sometimes people say to me, would you ever go into politics? And I say, you know what, I wouldn't, because I'd be like Boris Johnson. I mean, with different politics, but I wouldn't be able to stay the course. You know, I, wouldn't, I don't have the concentration span. I don't have the ability to look at the things in, 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 in the depth that very smart people do. But those are the people we're now rewarding in society. And on telly, it's fine. You're a comic or a presenter, so it's good to be a speed of thought, originality of thought, that's all you need. But in politicians, it'd be nice to have a little bit of depth of thought. Be nice to have it. Although, don't you think that you and I are somewhat to blame for Boris Johnson? And I'm just going to explain why. I'm guessing neither of us voted for him. But I know that you um, have talked a lot about you're quite a defender of reality TV. Um, I'm mm-hmm. also um, something of a defender of reality TV, not least because I suspect it's reality TV formats that have in part paid for each of the places from which we are having these conversations. <laughs> so we have, to, yeah. we have to be careful not to bite the hand that fed us. Um, but if I think that something about these big loud characters even if we hate them we kind of love to mm. hate them I noticed when Trump kind of came out of the White House much as I've spent you know the last four years winding myself up into a fury every day when I read the you know headlines and see him in them when he was gone I was a, I felt a bit like one of the late show monologuers thinking like, well, what, what do we what do we get aerated about now so do you think that there's that, that the way in which society's got quite sort of polarized and we've got these big loud charismatic characters without much behind them that is something that's represented also on television isn't it yeah, it's represented on television. I don't think television caused it. I don't think most people say, oh, all started with reality TV. I don't, I don't believe that's the case. And certainly if you look at most early reality television, this, the, uh, the moral really was that the underdog would usually win. You know, you'd watch a Big Brother or something. Uh, and the louder you were, um, the more likely you were to be voted out, to be kind of found out. Uh, and it was a, a wonderful place for underdogs, you know, and, and always was. Uh, and also a very wonderful place. I had to do a, I didn't have to, I agreed to uh, do a, like an interview at the Labour Party conference years ago. It was down in Brighton, and that's my hometown, so I was happy to go. And I said, listen, you've got reality TV to thank for why people like Corbyn, because the one thing a reality TV audience understands is authenticity, right? And people say, oh no, but it's fake, the producer's fake, but you think, ah. Uh-uh. These people are watching 24-7, these people. They understand authenticity. They might like someone or dislike someone, but they know when they're being truthful to themselves. So Jeremy Corbyn, whatever you think about him, he's been true to himself. So he has an authenticity, which is why that generation, I think, um, why he appealed um, to them uh, quite so much. Uh, And I think that reality TV, again, you know, the criticism is always, oh, it's manipulated. And you think, I tell you what was manipulated, those documentaries in the 70s, by, you know, Oxbridge people who were sort of going on to housing estates and then 
cutting these documentaries, making people look a certain way. That was manipulated. Reality TV is about as unmanipulated as, uh, as, as, as you could have got uh, back then. And now documentaries have caught up and now documentaries are far more kind of fly on the wall and true to life. And, you know, it's, um, yeah, I think it's unfairly maligned reality TV, I have to say. What is it about middle-aged white guys and technology? So sorry about the sound quality, motherfuckers. I used to get, um, because I worked on the real world, so that was the very first reality TV show in my book. Um, I know that you worked on Survivor, which certainly was the first reality TV show that brought in the sort of voting off and more sort of strategic thinking and also then pitted different personality types against each other. When I look back at the real world and road rules, which we did used to sell around the world, you know, they did, and this was back in the sort of, um, yeah, very, very early, no, late 90s, actually, um, when we did that. And they were very innocent. And it really was just, oh, I get a chance to be a voyeur in, in again, in an innocent way. I just get to see what people yeah. my age are doing. And then obviously everything became more structured. And we started looking at, at what, and, and that's when people started to say, is it is it contrived? Is it real? And certainly when I worked on the MTV um, formats like Geordie Shore and X on the Beach, I was always kind of being asked to go onto panels and defend the fact that they weren't entirely contrived. And I guess you would be a sort of um, an advocate for saying, no, it's not contrived. It's letting the best man or woman win. It's, it's, I mean, listen, life is contrived. You can say, oh yeah, but listen, you've set this program up and you know, they wouldn't really be running this bar. I think we go to work every day. What do you think that is? That's a contrivance. It's you an abomination that you and I try to avoid. <laughs> so that's what it is. Yeah. <laughs> but you know what I mean? We're constantly being put in these situations in life because we're told, you know, capitalism tells us that we all have to go to work and we have to sit in an office with 15 other people. And that, that's false, but, you know, we, it's, it's real life. Um, and I think that certainly the generation who grew up with reality telly understands that you know there's there's a there's a probably our generation we look at it just go but but this is nonsense and there's all sorts of rules and they're doing you think, yeah yeah but the viewers all, they all know that so they know that and they're looking underneath it because they see that it reveals character which is the fascinating thing about lots of reality tv these days i think it does less at this days reality tv and celebrity tv have merged into two you can see that and it's you know a, a, a lot of it is just sales but back in the early day you weren't seeing you know, interesting, you know, I'll watch, you can learn more about human nature from one episode of Come Dine With Me than you can do from most kind of high budget dramas. And do you think that if, if you look at the sort of shows that there are and the ways in which these things evolve, um, do you think people's real self has to show through? That's the mistake people make. I think you've produced reality shows. I, mm. I've worked on them too. And I think people really think, you see people burst into the Big Brother house or onto, you know, um, Love Island, being a way they've decided they're going to be. This is going to be my yeah. TV persona. And then really quickly, usually within the first day, their real characteristics have come yeah. through. And I, I sometimes thought, I sorry to keep talking about Trump, he doesn't deserve the airtime. I'm sure he won't be listening to this. But um, but one of the things that struck me about him was you could just see behind the curtain that he's always said the right thing in the room. So wherever he was, he said the thing that room wanted to hear. And until he was in the public eye, it didn't matter because he could say something completely different in the next room and convince them. And that's how he hustled, hustled his way through life. And then suddenly he's on a world stage and we're going, hold on a minute, you've said seven different things that are completely contradictory just to charm the room and there's a sort of element isn't there of us becoming ourselves whether we mean to or not yeah I think so you know I, I always think 
quite often people come off like I'm a celebrity and say, oh, I, I was edited so badly. Obviously, there wasn't anything like it. And you think, I know the people who make that show. You, if anything, you were edited to make yourself look less boring than you were. You know, you went there, you didn't do anything. You, you, were, you, were, you were slightly passive aggressive. You're not the human being you think you are. You didn't come across well. And so in the edit, they sort of chopped you out quite a lot. I'd love to know who was in your head when you just said all of that. <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, who isn't in my head? You know what I mean? It's, um, it's, it's when we go on television shows, it's very easy to present one side of ourselves. You know, but if you're on a TV show for half an hour, it's easy to be your public uh, image. It's, it's very hard on those shows for someone who is a fake to get away with it, which is why people who are genuine tend to win them because they have a consistency of personality. And that's the thing, you know, that's why the betting for those shows is always so ludicrous because at the beginning, the people who are the most popular are always uh, the lowest odds and they're the most famous people. And by the end, it's just the person who is the nicest. A decent, kind human wins out. Yeah, the person who stayed the course. But, you know, that's, uh, oh, you won't read that in the newspapers. <laughs> That doesn't sell. That's not good copy. And do you think you're somebody who I think you you're a self-confessed um, introvert, or you're certainly not. You wouldn't bill yourself as an extrovert. And people seeing what you do might be surprised to hear that. In some ways, and we'll come on to to your writing and your and your book. In some ways, being a writer, which I know is how you started in telly as well, but in some ways that makes sense perhaps for somebody with your personality. But then you're also very much out there being yourself so it is you and your personality that is you know in in that place on pointless and and out there you know doing all the things you do in the public eye so how, how do you square up introvert extrovert well firstly you're right about that I wasn't even on telly till I was 40 and so and I'd already sort of uh, bluntly I sort of made my money by then so I could I could I didn't have to do anything that I didn't want to so I was able to just be myself and uh, I only take on shows where I think I can be myself so that's useful but secondly I'm quite an alpha introvert so I'm quite an alpha human being but I spent my whole life six or seven walking people look at me in the street whatever happens endlessly I've, my, my whole life I felt an outsider and I get stared at and actually going on, t- on television funny enough didn't I don't feel any more exposed walking down the street than I used to because everyone looks at me again but at least some of them now are going oh that's the guy from tv rather than going wow look how tall that guy is so I think introversion was never an option for me because I stand out of any crowd. Um, and so it, it didn't make a huge amount of difference to me, but at least now I sort of feel like I'm getting noticed for something slightly more positive rather than just for being different. I don't know why you didn't just move to Amsterdam or, or at least the Netherlands. Uh, I've, got, I've got various friends your height. And as you know, mm. my kids are half Dutch and uh, you'd, you'd fit yeah. really well there. Um, or you could have had your kids with a very tall Dutch woman and have had the most enormously tall kids ever heard of. So you, you missed well, listen, life decisions there. There's, there's still time. I'm only 50. That's true. You're 50 and single. I want to talk about, you've mentioned the elephant in the room, which is since I last saw you, oh, you God. have turned 50. You've always seemed to me to have quite impeccable timing. You know, you got out of TV um, behind the scenes when you decided you'd made lots of hit shows and had had enough of that. Then you managed to pull out the bag, a really um, impressive, you know, 10 years presenting. That 10 years hasn't ended. Um, and then you've started to be a successful author. Um, so your timing's always been impeccable and you moved up a vaccine category um, neatly before the vaccines were ah. out. So I think you're, you are a genius. You're always a I could not have turned, <laughs> turned 50 at a time. I was so delighted. 
I mean, because listen, it's a, it's a, as you'll find out in seven or eight years' time, Kelly, it's depressing turning fifty, and uh, this is this has been a cherry on. It's been a nice uh, a nice little bit of icing on the cake. You see, you you've talked about your forties. I know as such a positive decade. I've actually had a slightly re- reverse thing, which is I found my forties really really difficult, and I I changed direction at forty five. So and and you at thirty nine, I think. So I I thought I was you know you thought you were late to the party. I was very late to the party, and my forties were quite were quite lost and unhappy. And I don't know as you know for women, there's also all the kind of hormonal upheaval which does start much earlier mm. than people talk about, um, although luckily people yeah. are talking about it more now but I found that really hard and then turning 50 felt like a massive relief and I just remember literally waking up the next day yeah. feeling better about myself and I'm I'm only a couple of years in but I'm loving it so far so I'm wondering you know because you had your midlife crisis quite quite early didn't you you had yours when, when would you say yours happened you were very precocious with it yes exactly I was way ahead of the curve funny enough I was talking to a very good university friend of mine the other day and she uh she, like I won't say, she, she was an alcoholic, uh, and in her early thirties, she gave up booze, still giving it up, and everyone's incredibly proud of her for doing it. So she had her crisis early thirties, which is probably when I had mine as well. And we were sitting chatting, uh, and we were looking at the wreckage of, of a lot of our friends around us who are in late forties and what have you, and said maybe we just got our awful crisis out of the way at the right time in the early thirties. You know, we both went through a bad time, uh, and we're both. We seem very, very happy um, now, and we see, you know, obviously, life is as, um, uh, you know, as, as 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 challenging as it's ever been. But we have a we have a kind of self belief and, and a and a calmness, and a, you know, we've done a lot of work on ourselves, uh, and it's fascinating to see now other people sort of having to go through the same thing that uh, we went through very early. But yeah, I wonder. I know it's a truism, but it's, it seems like the fifties for women is kind of like the forties for men in some ways just that decade where, whether with men, it's the testosterone has worn off a tiny bit. I don't know if it's that. And so one becomes less competitive. And um, with women, it's various different issues as well. But that feeling that maybe you can be yourself a little bit more and your public face is not the most important thing. And, you know, it's, uh, you, you, you kind of feel a bit more love for yourself, I suspect. It's also lovely to defy stereotypes. I think there are still so many stereotypes about what happens to women at a certain age and that men grow into themselves and become, you know, more and more handsome and rugged and that women sort of lose it at a certain point and are redundant. I think there's a whole generation of women really um, joyously disproving that, you know, when when, um, when that guy, that French... Yanmois, that guy said that thing about women at 50 being invisible, upon mm. which I dined out and did a whole Edinburgh show. Um, but I think it was, there were so many women, sort of, it was lovely to have the opportunity to say, for all of us, to say, no, look, you're not yeah. quite right about that. Um, but do you think, you said you've worked a lot on that, because you had, um, without getting too sort of Freudian about it, but you're a, a man who grew up without a sort of male role model, certainly in the form mm. of a dad from quite young, right? You were eight or nine yeah. when your dad yeah. left. Absolutely. So that has an impact, I imagine, on on your sense of, you talked about being tall and that impacting your sense of belonging. But being Mm. a sort of outsider, how is it sort of learning how to be a man without having had that sort of effortless male role modelling inside the home, which I know lots of people listening will have been in in a similar boat. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's... it's, um, I I have no interest in doing a, 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 a woe is me thing about men. Because listen, we're 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 aware of the privileges that um, our gender uh, prefers upon us. But yeah, listen, it is hard, and you know, I think that I have 
I think in my heart, I am quite testosterone driven, you know, uh, so I feel like I am quite male. You mentioned testosterone a lot. It's obviously been a long lockdown for you. You're like, I mentioned my testosterone. (laughs) But you know what I mean? But I'm not one of those people who would be, would, I, I think I have, I think I have, some stereotypical male characteristics uh, and and those things you, you have to harness them to use them for good is the truth and so I can feel, when I see um, masculinity sort of uh, unharnessed and you know unworked on in the streets I, I, I recognize I sniff it in the air you know so I'm not thinking what on earth's happening here I'm thinking I see exactly what's happening here um, and you know I do think it's um, Having strong, uh, kind uh, male role models can be very, very useful. It doesn't have to be a father, of course. I mean, that's mean if you've got a great mother, you were, you were, you were born, uh, you know, you won the lottery of life. But, you know, it, it's useful to see role models in society, male role models who are, who are strong but gentle, strong but kind. You know, my grandfather was that. He was a police officer. He was, he was very strong but, but gentle. And, you know, that's the thing. But, yeah, it's... it's there is a there's a deep immaturity to being male women mature a lot quicker than men and men are very immature you know i absolutely buy that um and that's a problem for women it's also a problem for men you know it's not fun it's not a good thing to be if you're a sociopath and you can use it and gain power great you can be immature for your whole life if you want to be a useful decent member of society and be taken seriously quite hard to be immature you know it's quite hard to know that you're not quite getting stuff it's helped you though to be. It's helped you to have an inner eight-year-old, though, hasn't it? If you look at the the mm. things you've created, and you're all about sort of fun and play, and you yeah. seem to have a sort of playfulness. I know, um, you know, when you talk about things, it's like, well, is it fun? You know, you're driven to do things that actually yes. are fun, and you were lucky enough to find a job for pretty much out of uni that suited you. Yeah. you know, it was fun. It was using all the bits of your brain that that kind of worked on the sort of gaming and and not as in gaming, you know, Dungeons and Dragons, but but games and puzzles and fun so there's there's got to be I know that's something I found really hard when I started out in comedy that bit later when I'd had to be really responsible for a couple of decades and bring up kids and have a good job it was really hard to just sort of giddy about and be be a laugh the times that stuff I've done on stage and on screen Mm. hasn't worked when I forgot to be playful and I was so busy being like well I've learned it and I've written it and I'm really going to take this seriously and everyone's paid to be here and everyone's like oh it wasn't a lot of fun Callie but well done Um, like I was trying to get a certificate for, for achieving so well as the stand-up but it seems that you have access to um don't take this the wrong way to being an eight-year-old uh, quite readily <laughs> funny enough I, I, I tweeted the other day uh I, because i was watching the snooker was on and i had some uh, some mini eggs and i and i said um you know 10 year old me visits from the past says what are you up to i say oh I'm watching the sneaker eating mini eggs and 10 year old me says, oh, same. Uh, <laughs> then 10 year old me said, do you still fancy Kim Wilde? And I said, yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, and that's nice. And this, I think because my dad left when I was eight, there is a huge disconnect there and a huge gulf. And so the eight year old me and the 50 year old me uh, have, a, have a, a continuum, you know, we're, we're, we're very in touch with each other. Um, you know, I just had to do a lot of work on the bit in between, uh, I think. But um, yeah, it's wonderful to still have to be able to access your playfulness and your childishness and your wonder at new things. And, you know, I still listen to the charts every week. It's ridiculous. You know, I just, I like, I like new stuff. Is there an age um, between eight and 50 when men learn to piss in the toilet instead of on the floor? Um, well, uh, post 50, of course, you can have a sit down week, which is the, uh, 
the greatest toy of all. I honestly, this whole toilet thing, I've never weed on a seat in my life. And if I ever have, it's been wiped down straight afterwards. Um, and any time a woman has to use a, a loo after a man and they go, oh, I can't believe it. I had to go into the loo and there's a, a guy had used it. It was a disgusting. And you go, yeah, we've had that our whole lives. I've, every single toilet I've ever used, I've had to use after a man. You want to be a man and have to use gender's toilets. It's no, it's no more fun for us. They're not going in and going, ah, oh, brilliant. Smell of excrements. And there's wheel all over the seats. I'm in my natural environment, in the jungle. You know, we hate it as well, but we have to, we have to do it all the time. It is... Um, but occasionally, like at work or something, there's like, like I, I can't understand why someone's weeing on the seat and not cleaning it up. I've and I think they must understood. be doing it at home as well, because I always used to think, well, I'm sure you wouldn't do that at home. And then, well, mind you, now sharing a house with only only males, which I never thought would be the case. I'm, I am wondering if there is an age when they sort this out. But obviously, I'm just sharing a house with the wrong people. Namaste, motherfuckers! Um, I wanted to talk about your um, your book, uh, which I have just finished, and I won't uh, quote the text I sent you because it would ruin the who done it. Um, but it suffice it to say, it was a surprise, um, and I was really pleased about um, yeah who, who's going to be in the next um, in the next book. But I just wanted to start at the end, which is always a lovely place to start with your acknowledgements. Um, and I did actually read them after reading the book. I know some people may have forwarded straight to them, but I thought they were really for somebody who doesn't always strike me as, I mean, you are earnest, but you're also quite playful. And I'm not sure that being sort of really earnest and vulnerable is the most comfortable place for you. And it seemed to me that in the acknowledgements, you really did have those qualities evident. And I actually found it quite touching reading it. And if I may, I'm just gonna quote from one bit that you said at the end of your acknowledgements. Um, I'll end, if I may, with the big guns. Thank you to my mum, Brenda Osman. I hope that amongst other things, there is a sense of kindness and justice running through the book. And that of course comes from you. Gives me a little goosebumps, Eve. I feel like Aww. I know Brenda, but that's a, that's a really, that seems quite an un-you thing to have written. There's no, well, there's no, not that there's a side to you, but I can't, there's something very, um, almost unshowbiz about that, isn't there? It's kind of like, this is where I'm from and this is what matters. Yeah, listen, I think I, I, I would love to be more earnest than I am. You know, earnest people get stuff done. Uh, but at the same time, you can't be earnest all the time. And, you know, on Twitter, occasionally you get people endlessly tweeting aphorisms about the world and about being kind and care. You say, all right, come on, entertain us as well. Um, and so when you do show that emotion, I think, you know, it's, 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 it's more interesting. But, yeah, I, I mean, I'm driven by that stuff. I'm driven by that sense of kindness. I'm driven by very, very um, vulnerable emotions, but it's not something I would like to lecture about because we're all driven by that sort of thing. Uh, and I think it's worthwhile reminding people sometimes, especially the people you love, and telling them that. I think that's really, really important. But honestly, I'd rather be entertaining people uh, most of the time. I think there's it's that balance between entertaining and being vulnerable, isn't it? I certainly know that making my money as I do now, largely as a kind of public speaker and an after dinner speaker, that showing some vulnerability and some flaws fairly early on in what one says gets yes. the audience on side. Nobody likes to see a, a smug twat standing up on stage going, well, here's how you do it. And I'm really, I'm really rather marvellous. One day you might be like me. Um, so there is a sort of, uh, which can also veer into sort of um, disingenuous self-deprecation, which is quite popular, yes. isn't it? People sort of say, yes. oh, I'm isn't terrible just... at this. Um, oh, me? Oh, no, I'm just... I, I yes. couldn't, yes, and I didn't, and, and I never would. Um, but it sounds as 
because if you're not, do you have imposter syndrome? It's very fashionable at the moment, isn't it? Ever since Michelle Obama brought it back onto the uh, mainstream. Uh, but do, do you think you do feel like an imposter? Well, everyone feels like an imposter, don't they? Because uh, I mean, there's probably about eight people in the world who don't. Uh, and, and they're running most of the world, unfortunately, but yes. Well, they're sort of, by and large, they're not. You know the people in our industry who don't have imposter syndrome, and they've stayed at the same level of the industry forever yeah, and ever true. and ever and ever. And yeah. they sort of facilitate meetings with each other. They all work for big organisations, and they every week they have a meeting about how can we synergize between our two companies? What can we do with the rights to this programme? And you think, you're not doing anything. Yeah. You are literally doing nothing, and they very happily take home a big paycheck. Uh, and I don't think they give it a second thought. I don't and we will be thoughts. naming them in the show notes, folks. <laughs> yeah, so exactly. do tune in for those. Uh, it's all right for you. You can alienate everyone in the TV industry now, Richard. Some of us have to, you know, have to keep paying our dues. <laughs> it is lovely being able to do that. I, I never would, but um, it's, uh, you know, uh, so I think that, um, I think everyone has imposter syndrome. Uh, and I think that the only cure for it, firstly, is to accept everyone's got it. And secondly, to know, that, you know, the truth is you are an imposter. You're actually, you're not that good. You know, so do your best work, do your best possible work. If people like it, great. And if people like your next one, great. But, you know, it's, we're not, no, no one's owed a living. Um, be kind, work as hard as you can, do good work. Uh, and you'll soon find out if you've got imposter syndrome or not, you know, because stuff starts happening when you do good work, I think. I think that's the case. It's much harder. Of course, there's a structural thing built into it, which is, it's very easy for a man to say that because our barriers to entry to success are much lower. Uh, and if you're a woman with imposter syndrome, it, you're constantly being reinforced that you're not good enough, you know, which, which, which doesn't happen to, to men. So I, I think that um, to a woman with imposter syndrome, you have to say, look, everyone's got it. And hopefully you have allies who are reducing your barriers to be just as incompetent as any man you work with. I think that's why it's quite helpful when successful men and women talk about it. I think vulnerability and imposter syndrome mm. are quite important um, for people who are perceived to have all the answers to, to, to talk yeah. about. Um, it's interesting, isn't it? Imposter syndrome was, um, I interviewed Oliver Berkman recently, and I think he was quoting from somebody else, but the idea that imposter syndrome is comparing our inner dialogue with someone else's outer dialogue, um, which yeah. obviously is never going to square up and for us to remember that because it takes a lot of effort to look effortless, right? It's that social media thing, isn't it? When they say you're constantly comparing your blooper reel with someone else's highlights reel. Yeah. Uh, and my best friend who I bother with, she spends her entire life on Instagram. And she's always saying, oh my God, uh, so-and-so, she's got such a wonderful life and her marriage is incredible and their house. I go, if her life and marriage was that great, she wouldn't be posting on Instagram eight times a day pictures of how wonderful her life is, by the way. Because the one thing you know is if someone's telling you something about themselves, that's the thing that's not true. Or it could be people like us who are single deciding that that is the way it must be because they can't be anyone who's found <laughs> all the answers but, and posted but, but, but you get to, 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 to our age and you know enough people that you've seen these stories come and go. <laughs> and yeah. you know, especially people in the public eye who you know, and you just go, I spoke to you last night and you were not as happy as you would be on social media. You put him in a shed at the end of the garden and never see him again. You're talking to me about your marriage. And it sounded like it was in a lot more trouble than the pictures of you and your farmhouse <laughs> on Instagram are, uh, are telling us. It's nice to have a big farmhouse in which to be unhappy, though. But hey, oh, yeah, sure. do, you, do you think um, in terms of writing the book, 
uh, I was struck by the fact that you got you obviously got a, a seven figure advance that um, got got was much uh, much written about at the time. Probably lots of people going, yeah, but it'll be shit. And then everyone was like, oh bugger, it's good and it sold well. So you know, those of us who thought you know uh-huh. you were due a bit of a fall, we were very disappointed. I wasn't one of those people. Um, I did wonder yes, there were there were, <laughs> there were a lot of chapters. I wondered, were you getting paid uh-huh. by the chapter? Is that why there were? Um, what, what was the idea about the structure? Um, how many chapters are there in book one of the Thursday? murder club it's roughly a thousand words a chapter and that's because that's how i write i do a thousand words a day and because i'm quite goal oriented i try and write a whole chapter in that time and because i'm from telly I, I sort of feel like i need to be moving on to the next thing so it was sort of accidental really it's just because that's how i wrote and I, I didn't want to be halfway through a chapter and then come back to it tomorrow my brain wouldn't compute so i try and do a beginning middle and end every day and yeah, then it comes out and everyone goes, oh, I love these short chapters. And it's like the Da Vinci Code had short chapters. Wow, did you study the Da Vinci Code? And I think, I went, no, literally, that's my, my concentration span is two hours. In two hours, I can write a thousand words and a thousand words is a chapter. So it's entirely accidental, but I do think it makes it very readable. I do think it may, you know, you, you constantly haven't returned the page. Uh, and, you know, holding people's attention is a big thing, but it, it comes through my, my, my lack of concentration, which is, which is good. My lack of attention span has been rather useful. I wonder if all the great authors of all time would have had similar answers as to why they structured their books in a certain way. You know, I could do two hours, then I needed some cream eggs. I had to do a couple of tweets and I was done for the day. So that's... Yeah, but you know what? All authors would tell you that. You know, you write, you know Dickens wrote the way he wrote because he was writing for money and he was writing... And it you was serialised. Yeah, it was serialised the next month. The next month. So that's, the, that's why... He, and he's the greatest novelist um, in the English language, pretty much. Listen, your personality is your writing. Part of your personality is your attention span, I think. And did you, you say, and again, in your acknowledgements, you will now start to think that's all I read, um, but I promise it isn't. Uh, but I can quote from them liberally. Uh, Mark Billingham, uh, when you were talking to him about um, writing, the, writing the book, and he said there are no rules to writing a cl- crime novel, then proceeded to give you two rules which you live by. Are you able to disclose those rules? No, I talked to Mark, I'd say to Mark, Mark, you'd be able to do such a lucrative lecture tour at some point. Uh, and I, at some point, I will say what they are with, with, with Mark's um, blessing, but they're quite prosaic. And so I said, the thing with Mark, I said to Mark, you know, we, both of us get asked it now at things. Uh, and I said, the longer we leave off before we say what these rules are, the more disappointing those two rules are going to be when people uh, discover them. Do you know what? When you're at the start of a creative project, sometimes someone just says one sentence to you that unlocks something in your brain. Mm-hmm. You know, and anyone who's sitting at home doing something creative now or got a big project, you know how much you have to fool yourself in those early days. You know, you really have to creep up on yourself. And anyone who just gives you that one sentence that just says, okay, for the next week I can sit down and I, I know where I'm going for a week. And then one week becomes two weeks and then that becomes a month and that's two months. And, you know, it's the only way to do certainly a book, which is the hardest thing I ever did. So sometimes it's just... Someone says something that resonates with, 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 with how your brain's working at that moment, and he certainly did that. And is it the hardest thing you've ever done, writing the book? Yeah, really, really hard. And, you know, it took me a couple of years. And I genuinely, you know, I, I, I like everything I do to be successful. And this is the first time ever when I finished it, I thought, even if I show this to an agent and they say, this isn't great, and if nothing comes of it, I would have done it. And I'd be proud of myself for having the discipline to do it, for putting the work in. Uh, you know, it, fortunately, it, it didn't turn out like that. But the writing of it in itself was a, was, a, was a process that I was incredibly proud of. 
And then, you know, I'll have the book as well. In terms of the book, so the characters, I, I can well imagine that hanging out with those characters and knowing you're going to keep coming back to them and that there's another book and then I'm sure another book. It's certainly with my media hat on, my media exec hat on, I can see that it's enormously franchisable. I can see why Spielberg wants <laughs> the rights. And I can, I'm sure you didn't write it cynically, but I can see exactly yeah. where, you know, who it's appealing to. And it's a very broad audience and, and it can run and run. Um, but you are writing uh, largely, well, you're writing about um, a sort of a community of people in their 70s um, and uh-huh. some older, and you're writing in part through the voice of a white, older woman protagonist. Uh-huh. Um, so how yeah. is it as a, as a middle-aged white man uh, writing yeah. as a 70-something woman? Well, it turns out, turns out uh, who knew? We're not so very different. Um, yeah, people say, how do you get inside? The, I think I have the brain of a 75-year-old woman, I think. Um, and perhaps the body four. as well since lockdown. I yes. don't know. I can't see yeah, exactly. the jumper. Pretty, pretty much why I'm wearing the jumper. <laughs> uh, you know, there's four main characters in this book. And, and, and Joyce, the one you're talking about, does narration. She sort of writes a diary. And um, whenever I'm struggling at all, my agent will say to me, write a Joyce chapter. And it's because it flows out to me because she thinks the way I think. So it, it turns out that I clearly have the thought process of, of, of a 75-year-old woman, which is a a good thing to have. I suppose it's like having a you know, an eight-year-old boy, seventy-five-year-old woman, um, and you know she 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 does lots of free association. She's always going off on a tangent. You know she can talk about serious things or silly things. You know, uh, and honestly, I found it um, easy. I didn't really think about the male-female thing, and I'm really chuffed that people have liked the way I've written women, which is good. I didn't really think about it as I, as I was doing it. I just wrote people. The voices in my head are very real. And you know, felt felt like people I I I, I might have known. Um, so I honestly, it's the best voice in the world to write in because she can feign ignorance about pretty much anything, but also she can have wisdom about everything as well. So she's a, she's a, a wonderful character to write. I'm glad you said that you found it very easy to inhabit her, and in some ways you feel you you are a 75 year old woman because um, knowing you a bit as I do, that she's probably the character where you most came across and where she had those she's funny um, and she does funny she kind of does funny by stealth and mm. um, I found yeah there were lots of things and exactly that style of sort of well I'm going to go along seeming to go this way but actually there's something else going on over here that you might yeah. not have noticed but it's quite important so I, I did um, I, yeah I did like the, the way that she and you seem to be slightly on the Venn diagram of <laughs> Joyce I thought there was yeah, a, a, a smattering of overlap which I liked a lot a big crossover yeah and um, I just want to ask you before I, I, I ask you the, the three questions I ask everybody at the end uh, of the podcast. Um, there's quite a lot. You've obviously you have turned 50. Not sure we mentioned that, Richard, but you're 50 uh, now. And yeah. um, and so you've got so you've got your sort of midlife turning point and you've spent your last couple of years immersed in a retirement village for the purposes of writing your novel that's set in one. And there were, there were quite a lot of um, quite big existential questions in, in the Thursday Murder Club. It sort of very much takes yeah. on life, death, ageing head on. And I did wonder how yeah. much of that was a sort of catharsis for you coming to terms with being at a certain point in your life and sort of maybe standing at the top of the hill now. And we can start to see the view down the hill again, can't we, age-wise? Yeah, exactly. I mean, listen, it's, it, there's come to a certain point in your life where you understand you, that you're going to die. You understand in your head. You kind of go, oh, also, oh, hold on. This, this is not just, oh, I'm going to get a better job and then I'm going to compete and then this is going to happen and then I'm going to have a family and then I'm going to get a slightly bigger house. At, at some point, it just 
stops. Right? So there's a point where intellectually you understand that. And then I think there's a point where you emotionally really understand it and you feel it in your heart and in your bones. Uh, and that's certainly the case for me. It certainly has been for a few years where you, where you really get that this, there's nothing there. This is, this is all we have. Uh, you know, it's a finite space and it's a finite time. Um, and so your, your sort of priorities change a little bit in terms, of, in terms of trying to make the world a slightly better place and in trying to sort of heal things rather than, you know, divide things. So I, I, I feel like I didn't do any of that deliberately in the book, but, but certainly my brain is full of the joy of the fact that life is finite. And I think there is a, a joy to that fact as well as a, a, a sadness to it. It's a bit of a bombshell when you realise that the human condition is terminal, though, isn't it? You sort of think, oh, I've got a free pass. That's, that happens to other people. And then you start seeing things and think, oh, shit. I keep looking at my hands and thinking, oh, my God, I remember my grandma's hands looking like that and thinking she was really old. I don't know this, but my kids are 22 and 20. And sometimes I, I walk past people in the street, the families, and they've got kids who are sort of one and three and stuff like that, as my kids were. And you think, you poor buggers. Well, I, I, A, I think that. Uh, but B, I think, well, that's very old-fashioned. That seems weird that that's still going on. That yeah, business yeah. of people going, oh, we're going to have kids. You think, I don't know what you're doing here. What, what, do, you, what do you think the end game is here? Just what you think you're, because let me, I'll tell you now, they'll get older, then they're going to have kids of their own, and just, just, it's just going to carry on, and you'll love them, and that's fantastic. But there's no great story to be told here. You know, it's just, you know, someone has some kids, and then they have some kids, and then they have some kids, and then you do, you know, who do you think you are? That's all, that's all that's going on. <laughs> <laughs> the life according to Richard Osman yeah. is um although you've gone against type haven't you because a lot of a lot of uh, men your age might not be um appropriate age dating and might well have gone again with the uh-huh. second family so that's right that's all the rage isn't it we have one of those our blended family has a has a, a child of a and my kids have a little brother who's a uh, sort of generation away from them oh, when people my age are having kids I'm like oh god <laughs> what are you doing I know. Can you imagine how knackered you? I mean, I, I look at now, I used to be sort of very broody uh, back in the days when I had my kids and I absolutely best thing I've ever done having kids hardest and the best. Yeah. But I now look at people with little kids and I think, shit, if you only know, it's not the bits everyone tells you are going to be hard, but those particularly the age hours are now actually in their 20s. Um, when you're sort of hoping that you might have spat them out into the world, able to be adult humans and watching them and thinking, God, I can't just get in and solve stuff for them. This is, I'm finding this about the hardest stage there's ever been as a parent. Yeah, no, the, it's, um, it's an, our, our friends have all got that. I just, honestly, every time I see a, a 50 year old guy with a young kid, I think, oh my God, what with my knees? I just, uh, I, don't, <laughs> I don't think I could do it. Maybe you should start with that on your dating profile. Would you pick as your namaste motherfucking moment that changed your life? Um, I would think it's, it's, it's a tricky one, but that imposter syndrome thing is interesting because obviously I always felt that. And I got a job in telly out of a newspaper. I didn't know anyone who worked in TV or anything like that. So I got this job as a researcher uh, on a computer games program for Sky in the early 90s. And uh, I didn't know anything about the world. I was very, very... I, I was at, at 21, I, I was all over the place. So I didn't know anything. But I, I turned up in that building. I thought, oh, so this is, this is work, right? This is what people do. This is the job. Uh, and the second people started talking about the TV program we were about to make, I just thought, oh, you don't watch television. Oh, you don't know anything about this. Oh, I spent the last 16 years watching TV. And 
I literally, I know the answer to these. I, I keep it to myself for now because no one likes a smart ass on, on first day. Genuinely thought, ah, this is what you've been training for. You know, this is a job you can actually do. Someone's going to pay you for this. Uh, and, you know, if you, if you just keep your head down, you could probably do this forever. So but I, I think the, that the moment was seeing how little people who were clearly very successful knew about what they were doing. And I just thought, oh, well, I'm going to fit right in here. I can, uh, I can bring something to the party. And I've always tried to bring something to the party ever since. I've always tried to make someone more money than they pay me. It's, sort of, it's all I've ever wanted to do, to do an honest day's work for a, for a, for a proper day's pay. It's also a good um, thing to, for us to tell everybody in terms of a work, yes, make people more than they pay you and you, chances are you'll have a job for as long as you want it. It's interesting that you, um, it, it's, such a, it's such a basic thing, isn't it, that people need to watch TV if they want to work in it. But lots of people who yeah, work in television, think so. I think they're better, they think they're bigger and better than the people they're making the television shows for. And that's where I think you end up not appealing to the mainstream because you're, you're, you're going at it from a theoretical strategic point of view yeah. instead of something that might actually, actually work. So, um, so basically, um, kids watch television for sixteen years, and the world will be your oyster. I think that's the um, the life advice. Well, also, or play games, or you know, or, or or you know, do YouTube stuff. If you if it's what you love, then you can get you can have a job doing it. So yeah. you know, I was always told to watch less telly when I was growing up. And you think, well, look, look at me now, Mum. Uh, you know, it's you know, the heart wants what it wants, doesn't it? I'm going to go downstairs and tell my son to play more Dungeons and Dragons as soon as we finish this. Um, right. So uh, what is your favourite joke? Oh, there's a joke. I was fortunate enough to do the, um, I'm sorry, I haven't the clue live tour just before um, lockdown uh, with lovely Tim Brick Taylor, who's now no longer with us, uh, and Miles Jupp and various other people, lovely Jack D. And we had to do a joke um, as we went on stage uh, for every show. And so I'll do the joke every day because I always got a laugh. I don't know why. And I would say, oh, I've just got back from uh, just got back from skiing. I didn't really know what I was doing. I was at the top of the slope uh, and didn't know whether to go zigzag, zigzag, or zag, zig, zag, zig. So I saw this guy. Uh, he's dressed in all the kits. I said, excuse me, mate. Um, couldn't help you, could you? I want to go down the hill, but I don't know whether to go zigzag, zigzag, or zag, zig, zag, zig. And he said, um, sorry, I can't help you. I'm a tobogganist. I said, oh, well, in that case, can I have 20 Benson and Hedges? <laughs> I mean, you know, it went down well in the theatres of Britain. It's funny because I know you've, um, we've talked about jokes and you've always said that you wouldn't want to be a stand-up, that you would hate yes. to, to do that, but well delivered. Uh, that was a marvellous delivery you made. Um, and if there was one bit of life advice you could give to anybody listening, what would it be? Um, oh God, don't, don't listen to anybody, right? Perfect ending. Yeah. What's the point? Listen, you'll be fine. Keep, work, keep your head down. Work hard. Be nice to people. Oh, I'll tell you one piece of advice. If you find someone more talented than you, work with them. Namaste, that was the brilliant Richard Osman. Now, every episode, I pick a thing inspired by my guest that I'm going to try. Anyone who follows Richard on Twitter will know that he is the master of the droll one or sometimes two liner. He makes it look very easy. 
So this week, I'm going to dive into Judd Apatow's recent masterclass, 10 Tips to Improve Your Stand-Up Comedy Writing. There's a link to the article and video in the show notes, and it includes writing a 30-second set, which actually sounds pretty bloody hard, uh, a two-minute set, and a five-minute set. Um, As comedians, we've all got loads of strong pre-pandemic material, but those of us who do observational stuff have run a little bit dry of things to observe, given that literally fuck all happens every day, and it's the same fuck all every day. So I'm hoping it will generate some new material for when the comedy venues open again, which is allegedly any day now. On which note, I just want to mention saving live comedy. 50% of all workers in the comedy industry have lost over half of their annual income. 81% say their mental health has been negatively impacted by job uncertainty. 50% have given serious thought to leaving comedy because of the pandemic, rising to 60% for people of colour. Support the people that make live comedy happen so they can keep making you laugh. Donate now by the Save Comedy link in the show notes. Thanks so much to Richard for joining me. Links to all his good stuff are in the show notes as always. And sorry, motherfuckers, once again for the very poor audio quality at times during this episode. If you're listening to this, you've done very well. You got to the end, you persevered. I hope you felt it was worth it. And I promise you, normal service will be resumed as of next week. Namaste Motherfuckers was written and presented by me, Callie Beaton, with music by Jake Yap and produced by Mike Hansen for Pod People Productions. If you've liked today's show, please subscribe now on your favourite podcast app and also rate and review the show. Not because I'm needy and crave external affirmation, although those things are true, but because it does help other people find the show. We'll be back in your feed next Monday when I'll be talking to QI Elf and co-host of the hit podcast, No Such Thing as a Fish, Dan Schreiber. In America, there are over 300 women whose names are spelled A, B, C, D, E. And that's their first name. I'm Callie Beaton. Until next time, motherfuckers. Namaste, Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. (laughs) To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.